Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Jim Delgado on the show. As a maritime archaeologist who works around the globe, Jim has spent decades in the fascinating world of underwater exploration. From diving in the shallows to supervising some of the most cutting-edge modern expeditions that have spanned the seven seas, Jim is known as a respected, passionate leader whose prime directive is helping keep maritime archaeology alive and accessible to everyone. During his 44-year career, he has been privileged to host the popular television show The Sea Hunters for five years. He was the executive director of the Vancouver Maritime Museum for 15 years and was the executive director and then president of the Institute of Nautical Archaeology from 2006 to 2010 before beginning his tenure as the director of Maritime Heritage Program for the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Office of National Marine Sanctuaries from 2010 to 2017. In May 2017, Jim became the Senior Vice President of Search, Inc., where he will continue to advance the discipline and bring more history and archaeology live for scholars and the public alike. Jim is an author, co-author, and or editor of over 33 books, as well as numerous articles, archaeological reports covering a wide range of subjects related to history of shipwrecks. I discovered him doing research on the gold rush in the Bay Area and was fascinated by the book that I read and his work and decided that I needed to talk to him. This conversation definitely wanders through Jim's expertise and experience into topics beyond California history, but I know you'll love it. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Jim Delgado. All right. Um, so, Jim, what are some of the challenges of doing archaeological work in oceans? The number one challenge in underwater archaeology is the environment. It's no different than space. In fact, it's inner space as opposed to outer space. And with that, while you don't you know, get the opportunity to work in space by just swimming through it, and you can do that with scuba, just the same, you have challenges that are environmental that have you physically working in an environment that has you cold, that gives you a limited amount of time before you have to contend with the problem under pressure and having, you know, the potential for the bends. You also have to carry your air supply on your back. So whether you're just doing scuba, whether you're snorkeling, or if you're going deeper, um, as I have, where you're in a a dry suit wearing a hard hat, much like an astronaut. There are these requisite challenges that, that are there. But that being said, there's no difference in doing archaeology. Archaeology is archaeology, whether it's wet or dry on top of a mountain or even practiced in time on the, the surface of the moon. Right. And because there's, you know, if you're doing it in, in air, you know, uh, digging in a site in Egypt. You're going to get oxidation. You're going to get stuff from the soil that it's that's buried in. So there's always chemical reactions going on. I think it's probably just the image people have in their minds of water, you know, and, and water, uh, you know, uh, causing effects that are greater to substances that you're trying to dig for. 
I do want to latch on to something you just said. Um, one of my favorite books, nonfiction kind of narrative books is Shadow Divers. Um, it's a great, great picture of like shipwreck diving and like, you know, the challenges of it. And it's honestly one of those nonfiction books that really does the kind of the thriller type writing where you feel like you're going along for the ride. Um, and so are there other, are there other works that uh, you, you could point us to that could give a picture of what it's like to do this kind of work? Well, there's a wide range of books that talk about the, the aspects of diving and doing that work. Uh, and I have to say, you know, my earlier career, I mean, I started on land in California doing initially early, earlier archaeology, not maritime, on land with, you know, indigenous sites from the Ohlone people in San Jose, where I grew up to gold rush sites in downtown San Francisco, buried in landfill to ultimately going into the water. The aspects of diving and the perils of diving, I guess, that the people talk about are real. And there's, there's good accounts. I mean, I think Shadow Divers really does a tremendous job in talking about that and what's, what's required. Ultimately, for me, I mean, I guess I keep going back to one of the most important things that I ever did was as a young guy in the National Park Service and going into that part of archeology, span was fortunate enough to go with my colleague, Martin Mayer, to US Army Dive School at the Presidio of San Francisco. And there taking this course with a NAWI certification from Master Sergeant Dutch Bowen, I learned to dive in a way that was not, shall we say, your average sport diving certification. Uh, Dutch was a very good teacher. And following that, going through Park Service dive training and, and refresher workshops with stunts, well, let's just call them training exercises, mm -hmm. being latched wrist to wrist and being dumped in the Colorado River below the Hoover Dam to whitewater raft underwater and not get hurt, to going into the intake tubes of the dam, have your lights taken away and told to get out with a certain amount of time to taking your gear off and pushing it ahead of you in a sewer conduit that is stretched down below underwater. Everything to train you not to panic, basically. So, uh, you know, people jumping in the pool and trying to take your mask away and fight and push you underwater, just so you learn not to panic so that you can get out of a situation. There's that, but there's nothing that really substitutes uh, for just experience. And so in all the decades that I've been diving, I always remember what, what Master Sergeant Bowen used to say. There are old divers and there are bold divers, but there are no old, bold divers. <laughs> and, that's, and you definitely learn that from shadow divers. You learn that when you take risks, those, those risks are, you know, they, they just naturally lead to situations where your life will be on the line, given the nature and the circumstances. Um, yeah, and, and I've I, come close a few times. Um, now, in terms of the actual risks involved, some of those seem to be or could be mitigated with with sub technology, uh, with effective scanning systems to determine what's down there. Uh, one of my favorite lines at the beginning of the classic movie Jurassic Park is when Alan Grant is, uh, you know, they're they're un unearthing the uh, raptor uh, bones, and um, the guy running the computer says, you know. We may not even have to dig anymore. Um, and he says, where's the fun in that? Um, so I wonder where you are in terms of the future of uh, nautical or maritime uh, archaeology 
moving away from having divers being a part of the process and moving more to technology? Well, I don't think you ever really want to take away the diver element. And there's a variety of ways in which to do that. It's just that there's ways to do this in which it's safer. But there is something to be said, one, in terms of actually being there and interacting with the site, if you can do so safely. And the other is, as I found lots of times when people uh, want to know as if somehow, um, and maybe this is just a modern thing where if I've somehow experienced this through a computer screen, it doesn't mean I'm there. And that's not exactly the case. I mean, when we're, we're using robotic systems, I mean, I can't dive, you know, 4,000 feet with an excavation that we once did in the Gulf of Mexico. But I'm there looking at a real time and working in the commission, in the command center with uh, the ROB pilots and the rest of the team and saying, okay, a little bit to the left now and let's move. And now can you give me not only a pen and tilt on the camera, but let's just take the probe and carefully go and see if you can move a little sediment. So in that, I mean, I think that's the real deal. But having said that, I mean, there's this other part of it in which people look and they go, well, again, you know, you know, when I went, you know, knowing that I went to Titanic, somehow it makes it better for some people to know that I actually got into a sub with the Russians and dropped two and a half hours down to that wreck and hung out there for the rest of the day and then came back up because somehow I put it on the line with the pilot. Of course, you know, you know, Viktor Nisheta, you know, Anatoly Sagalevich, uh, you know, uh, these guys, um, you know, Evgenia Chenyev, the guy who was driving the sub on my first dive, they're pros, so you're not really at risk. But somehow then it makes you more aquanauti and like the astronauts. And yeah. it's real. <clears throat> so... So I know there's a lot of developments in autonomous uh, submarines and using them for large scale uh, scanning projects of the bottom of the ocean. Uh, what do you think we'll discover from that that we don't already know now? The key thing to remember is that the ocean is truly a frontier in which we don't. I mean, you can look at a map and you can say, okay, we've mapped the surface of the oceans. Well, yeah, we can get a good you know, Google Earth satellite photo of the surface of the ocean. And we have a sense of what it looks like down below. And when you zoom in, say, on Google Earth, you can see, you know, sea forms. What most people don't realize is that those are basically extrapolated by measuring with radar the surface of the ocean as it's displaced by submerged, by being submerged. And it's, it's a guesstimate at best. Now, when I first got into this, we were looking at a seabed which had not been mapped. I mean, and mapped to the point of detail so that if you knew that you were at the intersection of such and such street, three blocks away was your favorite store. We didn't have that level of mapping as we do on land uh, for the longest time. And then it got to 5%. We've just surpassed 20% thanks to a big push in the last few years, again, with autonomous vehicles. But in that, what we have and what we're gaining is a more detailed sense of this final frontier. And I wanna stress the point that it is a final frontier. It's a final frontier just as anybody who watched Star Trek would love because you're seeking out new life. You're seeking out evidence of our own civilization and we're boldly going where none have gone before. Even if it's with robotic probes, they're doing with high level sonar, sophisticated maps 
And then they're following it up with what we call characterization, which has us looking and seeing what's down there, whether it's origins of life, it's uh, with black smokers, whether it's tectonic activity and undersea volcanoes. And that's something to watch with an ROV as fireballs roll into the black of the deep sea off the slopes of a volcanic you know, mountain. Um, to come up onto the slopes of mountains as big as Everest, if not more, down there, but also to start finding shipwrecks. So I think back to the start of the question, we're going to learn a great deal more because out there, there are well over a million shipwrecks from different time periods sitting down there waiting to be found. And if you think it's just out in the deep ocean, they're literally right off of your, your own coast in people's own backyards and we recently did a series of missions where we were looking at and literally learning a great deal more about shipwrecks just off the Golden Gate, including literally one that you could stand on the bridge at one of the towers and look out and see the boat on top of it. And yet nobody knew exactly where it was. So with ships made from things like wood, how, how long, uh, what's the preservation process like? Uh, how long before they start to deteriorate and you lose sense of what it was? Well, we used to have a pretty common sense view, quote unquote, that shipwrecks that would sink in the deep ocean would be eaten by everything and there'd be nothing left. And we certainly see that in some areas. We worked on a wreck not too long ago, several years ago, actually, uh, off of the, the Carolinas at a place called Blake Ridge that was several thousand feet down. There wasn't much left of the wood, but the heavily corroded metal was there to give us a sense. We had the outline. You could see a pile of bricks where they'd cooked their meals and a pile of conch shells that they'd actually harvested and probably kept in a wet well wow. to keep going on to eat as their own food. Um, but yet you can go to other places and the woods preserved. It depends on the environmental circumstances and it also depends on how soon you get to it. This wreck from probably the 1840s at Blake Ridge had been consumed. If you go deeper into other areas, I think you can find that it's a while before uh, something comes along to eat it, and with a group of wrecks, probably from around 1818, that we looked at in the Gulf of Mexico, in about 4,000 feet of water. You had wood that survived because it had been buried in silt, but also because the hull had been coated with copper to help keep marine organisms from eating it when it was sailing. And the same chemical effect of that copper had now transferred to the submerged timbers, keeping the lower part of the hull more or less intact. Uh, so that you could actually see the outlines of the frames and surviving planks colonized, as in nibbled on um, by marine organisms, but just the same, still there. So part of the job of the archaeologist, literally, when we go down there, is not only just understanding what type of ship we might be looking at and what the artifacts speak to, but also this question of site formation. What's happened over time to turn a ship to, into a shipwreck? What can we learn about the actual sinking process? But also this other question, which has us intersecting with marine biologists and physical and chemical oceanographers and geologists on these shipwrecks as direct evidence of things like, you know, the rate of biological colonization. With the wrecks in the Gulf, we actually felt that these things had sunk intact in a desert. Now, it, even, you know, the desert on land has life in it. But this is a pretty barren area. And yet, for the marine organisms, the dinner bell had been rung. And so over time, it began to be colonized by creatures that ate the wood, that fastened themselves to portions of the wreck, 
that lived in the wreck and had generations that thrived and then passed. And all of that was there. And for our colleagues who work on that, when we can get a shipwreck where we can tell them when we think it sank or to the day, if not the hour when it sank, like a submarine we just looked at a few days ago um, in deep water, then that gives them a sense of how fast colonization happens and who comes first and what successive generations then take over in terms of the biota. And in that, it comes back to the Star Trek question of boldly going to seek out evidence of and, and information about life, not only human life in the past, but ongoing marine life in this fragile yet essential ecosystem known as the oceans. Let's uh, narrow our scope in a, a bit and talk about uh, the Bay Area as, is, as this is a podcast about California history. Um, can you describe uh, a little bit of, from what you've learned in your research um, about the scope and the size of the port of San Francisco that emerged kind of haphazardly uh, at the beginning of the gold rush um, as, as people came from around the world? Uh, what have you learned about it? Uh, how is it structured and shaped? And um, then we can move on to talking about the fire. Well, San Francisco had always weighed heavy, if you look at the history of the port and the bay, as something that every great power realized was key to tapping into the wealth of the world. And Spain saw it as a great and significant port, and it's no surprise that San Francisco Bay and the Presidio and the Mission and ultimately the town of Europa Buena reflect the most northern permanent settlement by both the Spanish Empire and then by the Mexican Republic, not counting, of course, the mission at Sonoma, San Francisco Solano. But as a port, it was big and big enough to attract the attention of others. Most people forget that Britain and the United States were both engaged in a clandestine struggle to try to take San Francisco Bay. People often say they wanted California. They didn't even know about gold at that stage. That bay was worth its literal weight in gold. And because even, you know, as you know, the first guy to, to map it, I'll say the Canisares would say, you know, with the Ayala expedition, this is a bay in which every ship in his majesty's fleet could anchor and not be in sight of each other. So, of course, Andrew Jackson tries to buy it, ultimately sends people to try to take it by force, particularly John Charles Fremont. And when it comes and when the gold rush happens, what changes everything is not just gold, but the fact that you've got this great magnificent port. And so with that, San Francisco just explodes. But it explodes, one, because it's the right place on the coast. And it, it, for the United States, it's its key to dreams of empire that take manifest destiny, not just to the shores of the western edge of the continent, but beyond, all the way to Asia, and to tap into the great oriental market, which has been the dream of Europeans and Americans for centuries. But it's a port that's flawed. I mean, the town is situated on the slope of a sand dune you know, peninsula. It is at the edge of a tiny mud flat that is exposed at low tide. That's a very shallow cove. And so to deal with that, 
thankfully they have all the money, thanks to the gold coming in, to overcapitalize and create this huge port that they will have to rebuild consistently, given various fires, but which immediately ties into the world economy. And it's that, that's why San Francisco succeeds. That's why the city grows and survives, not just fires, but the boom and bust of any mining rush. Why do you think San Francisco is so prone to fires? I mean, there's so many famous fires. This is a Chicago fire that's uh, quite famous, but um, do, you, do you attribute that to the kind of uh, haphazard uh, creation of the city, um, the, the condensing of population in an area uh, kind of outside the bounds of normal uh, government law and order? Um, what, what do you attribute it to? I think there's a couple of factors that play into why San Francisco burns so often. One is the fact that the easiest thing to build out of, of course, is going to be canvas tents and with wooden over wooden lath, and then you've got wooden structures. And you've got a town with a largely transient population. You have restaurants cooking, you've got candles, you've got gas. I mean, it's a recipe for disaster. And then you put into the mix people who figured out the fear of fire and use it as a means to distract attention so they can rob another part of town. And that's what happens, of course, in 1851. Uh, with that big fire. But you also have a, a, a city situated on the shores of a bay built out over the water and on a peninsula that's swept by wind um, at times. And so it's a perfect recipe for disaster. And any other town might have just taken some of the blows. I mean, 2,000 buildings destroyed uh, in the fire May 4th, 1851. And yet, the gold is there, the capitalization is there. You just rebuild. Scarcely you know, have the ashes cooled and they're shoveling things away and they're smoothing sand lots or they're filling in on top of burned and partially collapsed buildings and wharves to move out into the cove and construct new buildings. I mean, San Francisco particularly starts to build up in the spring of 49 and then it burns at the end and the year. It burns in May of 50. It burns again in May of 51. It burns in June. I mean, seven times the city burns, which is why San Francisco's um, emblem is the phoenix. Most people think that means 1906 in the earthquake environment. It, it goes back to the gold rush and those fires. Um, some of them deliberately set, others just plain stupidity and the lack of an infrastructure to deal with it. Uh, you don't have much in the way of law enforcement. You don't have anything but a volunteer fire department. And so many of the stories you hear are of individuals taking matters into their own hands on the frontier. Barrels full of rainwater on roofs. The idea of fireproof brick replacing them with iron shutters, which doesn't do anybody any good with some of those fires because they literally become ovens as the heat warps those iron shutters so that they're trapped inside and then literally bake to death or, or burst into flame. Um, Can you connect the dots for people about uh, how this fire at the San Francisco port led to uh, you know, ships and things being preserved? I don't think those two things naturally connect to each other. Well, the other thing to, to make that point, to start that discussion off is the fact that San Francisco, because it was at the edge of Russian you know, uh, hill, uh, and you had the other um, encroaching sand dunes coming in, 
there wasn't much space that was level or flat. I mean, the, the hill starts, you know, by, basically by clay, you know, you're, um, you're, you're very close. I navigated the city by bike. When I lived there, I didn't have a car and I was, yeah. <laughs> I knew which streets to avoid to retain my life. Yeah. So, you know, that, you know, San Francisco comes down rapidly and then it gets flat and where it gets flat at Montgomery street is where the, 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 the beach was, but you can't use that until you fill it in. So filling it in is a difficult process, but you start particularly because the town fathers to raise money for the municipal government to line their own pockets have subdivided the cove into water lots and they're selling them. And that the trade in those water lots becomes fierce. But in that you start creating real property opportunities stretching out into the cove. The streets of today were wharves back then and on these lots, well over a hundred ships were moored some cases settled into the mud and with pilings surrounding them, in other cases, just moored off to or tied to a dock to become floating buildings, again, because it's so expensive to construct a building. And in this fashion, these ships become the town jail, a church, uh, warehouses, government offices, you know, hotels, you name it. But when the fire comes, a number of these ships are trapped, four of them burn. And then others over time are simply scuttled in place or broken up in part with their bones, the bottom of the hull um, basically left in the mud so that you have close to 50 of them buried um, as landfill, particularly after the fire of May 4th, 1851, takes sand and covers over the burned over district. So collapsed buildings, pilings, the ships Apollo, Niantic, uh, General Harrison, all filled over <clears throat> and encapsulated now some 20 feet below the street. Yeah. And I, I know that there's two distinctions um, in terms of how parts of San Francisco were filled in. Some was just marsh and then other was kind of artificial landfill. Um, so around the area that you're talking about in the uh, <coughs> district, that's mostly artificial landfill, correct? It's all artificial landfill. So okay. it's, it's, it's sand that's been pulled down from the hills but it's also everything they couldn't sell. It's, yeah. ships, it's burned down, tumbled buildings, it's garbage, you name it. And then a fair amount of mud. And when you dig through that, uh, you literally are digging through not only a dump, but also given the mud and the water because the tide still rises and falls. I mean, it still comes up, hits the tide line, you know, beneath the sidewalks on Montgomery Street. Blocks are in the sea, you know, close to almost two centuries after. Um, but it, it creates this environment in which everything is sealed in a wet place, which helps preserve. So when we've opened that stuff up, you can still smell the fire. It's as if it, you walked into a building that had been torched yesterday. You can still smell the alcohol bottles that were broken. Yeah. It's like the worst frat party you've ever been to the day after. Um, in some cases, when we've been digging, but also well-preserved things, a leather jacket carefully folded and stowed in the Niantic. Uh, the, the threading had deteriorated, but the jacket was in perfect condition. Boots, um, foodstuffs, boxes that didn't burn, packed with straw and with wine bottles still in them. Yeah, I remember uh, the first time, well, I've only been there once, um, when I went to Southern Italy 
and I got to see the town right at the base of Vesuvius and just the amount of preservation there. Um, you know, it sounds like that sometimes for archaeologists, right, you know, it's what you find is kind of the, the lucky thing or the thing that had the right circumstances, the tar pits of La Brea, these specific places that have distinctive environmental factors that led them to be preserved. And it's, but it's also fascinating to me that it's sitting at the base of, you know, some of these massive buildings that they're building down, like the Salesforce building. And it just seems like a, such a, a difficult area to excavate just in terms of the density um, and all that's going on. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what that process was like on some of those excavations you worked on? Absolutely. I mean, I think the one thing to remember is that, you know, San Francisco has been built up and gone down time and again. So in some cases, some of these ships have been hit by earlier construction. Now that they're building the very big ones and you have to go down hundreds of feet with, you know, pilings to anchor to the bedrock and not have them floating in the, in the mud that overlays, you know, the bedrock and creates the, the liquefaction and the jello-like nature of downtown when an earthquake comes. You're dealing in a constrained spot. You're on a lot. You've got construction hoarding up to keep people's eyes away, perhaps. And you're working down there behind very carefully braced walls with construction crews as you race against time, which is money for a developer. Um, but thanks to laws, thanks to the, the vigilance of the, the city and its planning department and its historical resource folks, because San Francisco is a gold rush Pompeii in its own way, but because it also has other aspects of its history buried from a 9,000 year old human burial to, um, and that's a person, by the way, who probably was buried there when he was buried at the base of a hill in what was a valley. The ocean had not yet come through the Golden Gate when this person died, thanks to sea level rise at the end of the last glacial maximum. Um, you've, you've got that as well as other evidence of the city. So in any time, any place where this happens, it's part of what the developer needs to do is to work with the city to define what might be there to see what's found and then to mitigate. In some cases we've excavated. In the case of the General Harrison, which we were digging up in 2001, we're down in a pit that's like 25, 30 feet deep at the corner of Battery and uh, and clay. And you go down into that pit and you're moving the mud away and there's the outline of the ship. And it's chilly in the morning and you're moving mud and large amounts of it. You're washing and melting mud with water. Um, you're exposing features and documenting them and taking them out. And at this stage, as we're doing this work, um, then comes the discussion you know, with the developer in the city this is very important, should the entire ship be raised? And in that case, uh, you know, I was part of those negotiations and my suggestion was no, we know a fair deal about ships and how they were built. Let us document this. Let's try to keep it in place, even though some of it will have to be cut away to put the pilings in, but at least preserve some of it. And let's take the time we have and not focus on how planks are attached to a rib on a ship, which we have a, a good sense of for a ship built in 1840 to what's actually stored inside. And with that, the excavation of the General Harrison was really one of those transformational digs where suddenly we had artifacts that merged with documents and newspaper accounts made sense. 
and defined how San Francisco was never truly a frontier. But because of these ships coming in constantly with tremendous buying power of California gold, San Francisco had become linked to the global economy in a way that most people would not realize. It had not only fueled the rise of San Francisco, but of California, it made the United States richer and it tied us firmly to ships. You could have, we were finding perfume that had just been released. Some of the newest modern steel axes coming out of factories in New England um, and small lot wine coming out of French vineyards um, and 50,000 boxes of Cuban cigars. Um, everything that was good that you wanted to drink, smoke or eat as well as the fundamental aspects of building as well as steam machines and ice makers. I mean, all sorts of stuff that could arrive in the hold of a ship. And the General Harrison dig was the first real inkling we had of just how much that could be demonstrated. We'd seen a bit of it with Niantic and archeologist Mary Smith had done a good job in suggesting and laying out where some of that worked. General Harrison with thousands of artifacts and focusing on that uh, really was a breakthrough moment. I assume that there's stuff that's sitting underneath of, uh, you know, buildings that have been there a long time. Is there, is there a way to excavate that without messing with the structural integri integrity of the buildings? I'm sure there is. It's very expensive. But I mean, let's also just take a look at what could be done. Jim Allen and his company, William Self Associates, did a project when the Muni Metro was after the earthquake and they took down the, 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 the freeway. They were putting the new Mitro through and they drilled right through the hull of one of these ships that had been buried from the gold rush. They had to work in the airlock in that caisson to document the ship, the Rome, and they did so. But that was expensive and, and difficult. It was like diving too, because you have to go under pressure and you can only spend so much time before you have to come out and decompress, just like a deep sea diver. Um, so yes, we can do that. I think what's most important to, for people to remember is that generally this isn't funded because somebody has a desire to answer some questions or they wanna do something cool to touch history. It's because something's being built and under the law, if it's important and it can yield information that's going to tell us something, um, particularly you know, if somebody wants a permit from the city, then the developer has to pay for this. And it's been part of the the DNA of San Francisco since the 70s, when earlier discoveries just simply got bulldozed away um, because there was no law literally to protect them. So now they do it, but I think it's smartly and intelligently applied um, so that it's not so a, a burden on the taxpayer. You want to build a high rise, you've put into your budget that you're going to see if something's there and the city will only enforce the law to well, it will enforce a lot of varying degrees depending on how significant this is. Um, they're always pragmatic. They're always looking to what you can learn from it, but it's not a, you gotta dig everything up and save everything. And that's tough for some of my academic colleagues who would like to see everything saved. And I, I'm there with that, but there was no way to ever apply that. We were fortunate with General Harrison that we had a, an understanding developer who worked with Archaeotech, the company that did the dig under Alan Pastrin uh, and Rhonda Robichaud to, to be able to do more. But part of that is also because people volunteered and stepped up. You may recall, and I'm sure some people do, that we did that dig right at the time of 
And I'll always remember, you know, the day that morning of, you know, this, of, you know, September 11th, when the news came and we, some people were listening with radios down in the pit in, in the midst of the burned out wreckage of the General Harrison. And then we were evacuated. And when we came back, thousands of people came and stood and watched and we talked with them. Because I think, you know, Rebecca Solnit did a really wonderful essay about it. It was as if looking at that ship down there was a reminder that yes, things can be destroyed. And yet we build again, we persist, we persevere. Yeah, I can, I can imagine uh, some ways because I've been to the 9-11 uh, Memorial Museum and when you go down there in, in the pit, I mean, cause you go down those escalators and then you see kind of, you know, they've got uh, part of the, one of the radio towers and then a, a fire truck that uh, they were kind of salvaged half and it's been cut in half. Um, you kind of get that feeling of being in another time, uh, like being transported. And we certainly have that. I remember we were digging in 19, February 1980 at the foot of Telegraph Hill, what today is Levi's Plaza. And we were, we'd come down where Roger and Nancy Olmstead had done some research and where Alan Pastor was digging with Jack Pritchett. And there I was with them. And we came down on the deck of the ship William Gray, which had been scuttled there after being the base of a wharf for Freddie Griffin, whose warehouse still stands. And I remember standing on the deck of the William Gray, having scraped the mud away and opening up an area where the hold was exposed, filled with crushed rock from Telegraph Hill that had been used to sink it, but leaning up against the bulwark. So in other words, I, it's literally an intact ship. And I'm trotting on the decks for the first time since somebody shoveled that rock in and scuttled it in 1854. And you do get that sense of, for lack of a better word, time travel. Yeah. Well, and I, I think it's important to remember, because we were talking about the cost of excavation, that there, you know, there's quite a bit of excavation that can be done where there's not big obstacles in the way like skyscrapers. Um, I recently have uh, done some writing on the Yokuts and, you know, there are areas where similar situation where you have these, uh, what used to be Tulare Lake in the Central Valley, where they've done excavations there and found things, you know, from 8,000 BCE, um, yeah. you know, quite old. Can you talk a little bit about uh, work in California with, uh, you know, archeology span related to Native American uh, artifacts? Well, I swear I started, particularly in San Jose back before it was Silicon Valley. And as that started to happen in the early seventies, there I was. And you've got, you know, particularly you've got the Ohlone people who were there. Um, amazing sites um, that were going the way of the bulldozer until again, laws changed to protect them. Um, I remember an early dig run by Ron King where we were up at the Mostyn Ranch in Lake County and the site C-A-L-A-K-380, L-A-K-381 had remains, you know, going back some 10,000 years as I remember. And not just the burials, which you have to and always did treat with great respect. Um, there's something to be said about the sacredness and the awesome. And I don't mean in like that Bill and Ted awesome. I mean like awesome and terrible responsibility of exhuming somebody from the ground in advance of a reservoir or something of that sort. But in these days, working respectfully with their descendants in the community and following protocols. Um, a fair amount of that, 
I started in that area, transferred my interest into maritime when the Niantic was found in 1978 and the thought of ships as capsules full of things, the, the, the Pompeii-like aspects of San Francisco, and then realizing that there were shipwrecks sitting right off the coast. That changed my focus in a rather profound way 43 years ago. Yeah. But, um, there's a strong and powerful tradition of, of pre-contact um, archaeology, and now fair amount of archaeology also being done that looks at the contact period and fills in the gaps between what we know and what was said in the records, but also integrates some of that as well as traditional understanding and oral histories to get a better sense of just what happened as California was overwhelmed by the arrival first of Spaniards and then Mexicans and how the transition in society from Griollos, and it was never just a fully, you know, Castilian Spanish speaking group that arrived. You had people that were descendants of formerly enslaved and who had lived, uh, grown up in families that were the union of, you know, indigenous peoples, you know, in Central America, in the Valley of Mexico. I mean, people, you know, who are coming up there who have, you know, great, great grandmothers who were, were Aztecs or great grandmothers for that matter. Um, or even mothers, and coming there and through this process of mestizaje, um, becoming what they would call Californios. And they're, they're native, they're Mexican, they're Spanish, they're African, Mexican, they're Asian. And in that fusion, California is born as a, not a biracial, but a multicultural um, community. And then come Los Yankees, and then come, you know, the world literally when gold is discovered. But the, what archeology span I think teaches us is not only this, this long progression of human history, but it keeps coming back to a point that I think is important to remember. Archeology span informs us just as much about what we deal with today as people did with the past because there are patterns to history. There are factors that are eminently there because after all, we're human. And whether you spoke a language or worshiped in a different way um, back then, if you had different technology, it doesn't matter. They're grappling with issues just as we grapple with issues. And in some cases, profound issues. I mean, we are coming out of a pandemic now and hopefully not slipping too far back into it uh, with, with the Delta variant. But people don't often think to the pandemic that struck the native peoples of mm -hmm. Americas, and in particular on the West Coast, starting with what most likely was a smallpox epidemic that came out of Mexico City and with native trade networks worked its way up the coast to the point that by the time Spanish explorers landed in the San Francisco Peninsula, they thought it was abandoned because so many people had died. And Lewis and Clark virtually came down the Columbia River in a vast depopulated valley in which somebody would go off in the morning to go gather something or to go hunting and come back and find everybody dead. 90% die offerings, things of that sort. And that just profoundly changed the nature of the Americas. It changed those cultures. It kicked the door open for further acquisition by the colonial powers that would be. And archeology, span you know, touches to and connects with that. 
Yeah, it can it can bring up stories that are maybe silent in the written record. It has it has a power to uh, take us back in time, and I I think it speaks to something that uh, is talked about in California right now, which is uh, development and housing and thinking about uh, the ethics of that. So how how do you think about that question from uh, uh, from your archaeology background um, in thinking about what are the ethics of good development in a place? Uh, that's rife with uh, opportunities uh, to um, maybe not exhume all of history, but uh, to learn from what's right beneath uh, the sand or the land we stand on. I think, I think the most important thing to remember is that old adage of walking softly and not leaving too much of an impact. And I, I feel that we've reached a stage now where we are very clearly beginning to see the results of too much development and in the wrong places. Um, when you have neighborhoods that as the drought continues that are overrun by the life that's always been there, but now it's trying to seek shelter. I mean, people are flipping out because they've got rattlesnakes on their streets. Well, guess what? They've always been there. Now they're coming out because they're dying and they need to find a place. So that's why they're coiled up in your garden shed. That's why they're here. That's why they're there. Likewise with the bears or the other animals. We build and we don't often think of these things. We construct freeways that animals have to try to cross and die in large numbers. We create things in areas where uh, people traditionally uh, understood cycles and water availability, and we don't. We just arrogantly assume we can build a bunch of big reservoirs and everything's gonna be okay. Yeah. So we don't. And I mean, I guess if you really went back and looked at the archaeology, you'd say, wait a minute. Or if you talk to the indigenous people, say, wait a minute. I mean, and you're seeing this right now in Arizona, where uh, the people who are, you know, whose ancestors farmed that desert are saying, there's a way to do this. And you didn't do it that way. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting thinking about that question in the Central Valley, because I, I live in the Central Valley and in Central Valley, California, the, the environment has changed so dramatically uh, due to human intervention that it's hard to even really think about, uh, you know, using these ideas um, because the people that lived in the valley depended on the waterlands that just don't exist anymore. And so thinking about that and that legacy is just, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a sad story that just kind of lives on in the land as we, as we look out on the dry landscape going up the 99. Well, exactly. And at once, at some stage, I mean, being the archaeologist, I wonder what comes. I mean, ultimately, I mean, one could do just for a variety of reasons as things change and they leave their artifacts behind. Um, I have archaeological colleagues now who are collecting and documenting the archaeology of the pandemic wow. and what it says about human behavior. Um, I certainly see it as an archaeologist where all of a sudden, as things began to change, the, one of the most common artifacts of the pandemic began to appear in larger numbers uh, in parking lots. And we're talking about masks, yeah. cast missing mass, they'd always find one or two. And suddenly the numbers blossomed as people stopped caring so much about it. And if something had happened catastrophically and that had all been sealed like Pompeii, archaeologists would say, well, look, in the very tight time frame of a year and a half, the incidents, the count, the artifact count in this artifact, these masks grows tremendously. 
and it seems to be at a certain horizon. And what does that say? Well, you know, then you know we have a sense of that. Sometimes we have to try to intuit those moments from the past based on basic understandings of human nature, things of that sort, or talking to the people whose ancestors were there, which is always a good thing to do. But um, it, it, there's there's something to be said about the practice of archaeology and applying it to situations that we find ourselves in today, because as I said before, things happen again and again. There is, um, there is that aspect of the human experience. You would hope though that over time, you know, we would learn, but if reincarnation is in fact real, then the fact that we keep on being reincarnated does suggest somehow it's innately not in our nature to learn. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, hopefully we solve that with climate change, but, uh, you know, you're in, I, I, I think you're in Florida right now. Um, we're getting, uh, two sides of, uh, climate change and hopefully we can figure out ways to address it. Let's, uh, let's go back to the ocean for a minute and talk about, uh, other excavations you have done in California outside of the Bay area. So done some work up on the coast where up and down the Sonoma coast and particularly in Mendocino coast in the days of logging camps and ranches, the dog hole ports out of, you know, Fort Ross, uh, for example, those wrecks, coastal steamships that were lost. Uh, one of my areas of interest for me has always been the ships that were harvesting and building the city, harvesting lumber. I should say they're carrying the lumber that's been harvested, particularly out of those dog holes and out of the sawmills and initially building up San Francisco and other towns and then shipping it around the world. And a number of wrecks that I've worked on that talk to that gold rush steamships like the Tennessee wrecked up Tennessee Cove and Marin uh, just four miles north of the gate to the gold rush steamer Winfield Scott wrecked off of Anacap Island and Channel Islands in Southern California. Two other wrecks, modern um, steamers, fishing vessels, and one of the more recent group of projects a few years back off the Golden Gate, U.S. Navy tug Conestoga, which went missing with all hands after leaving Mare Island. Um, and we've rediscovered it. Um, the aircraft carrier independence brought back from the A-bomb tests at Bikini in 46, parked at Hunters Point and used for nuclear training Get your true to understand what it's like to be on a ship that's been nuked and keep it going. Though the classified reports do have the words in it saying that you know, they don't see survival rates as being good, but every 24 hours in which the screws are turning and the guns keep firing is another 24 hours closer to victory. And so here you are looking at a nuclear battered from two separate bomb tests, carrier in a few thousand feet of water, 30 miles off Half Moon Bay with robotic systems and taking a look at that. I'm not packed full of highly radioactive stuff that we could detect. And in fact, when we recovered sponges and other items, they had no radiation other than the basic level background radiation you find in the water or in the air. Um, and we have a little bit of that just because sunlight is radiation. Yeah. Uh, but also you, you've got naturally occurring radioactive factors. It's not enough that it's gonna hit you. It's not like a Chernobyl type of situation. Um, just the same, I think what we found with independence is it does speak to this idea that you could sink something full of discarded lab gear and samples 
and cut off pieces of other ships that they'd studied to see what radiation did to them. And you just put that out of sight and out of mind, you know, a few thousand feet of water off the coast in an area that's heavily fished, even though you say don't fish here. Um, all of that. Again, that in and by itself, an artifact that speaks to attitudes. Yeah. Well, and I, I hope that uh, people listening will take this away because this is something that uh, we talk about a lot is these different lenses at which we look through California history. Um, one lens is, you know, you know, the history of uh, Silicon Valley and computer technology, uh, agriculture. Um, but there's a big one, uh, which explains a lot of development of California, which is the major ports, uh, the Los Angeles port, uh, the development of San Diego during World War II, uh, the ports that e exist in the Bay Area. Can you talk about just, um, you know, why it's important to understand uh, the maritime history of California to really understand how California developed? Maritime history, I think, is more than just the concept of people going to sea. It's, it comes back to the question of the ocean being the highway that has connected us. It's the major driver of the world's economy. 90% of goods move by water, and over half the world's food comes from the sea. So we're linked to it, even if your seeming connection to the sea is getting the all-you-can-eat special at the Red Lobster in Kansas City. Um, it's far more than that. That car you're driving, that jacket you're wearing, that soccer ball you're playing with, some of the food you've, you've got that, if you've got a rack of lamb from New Zealand, that's come in a container. It's become frozen or otherwise shipped. It's then been loaded onto the back of a truck or a train and transferred to your market. Um, so there's that. But there's also the sense that, you know, with the ports, that is what long before Transcontinental Railroad, San Francisco is in. It's, it's state. It, it's actively contributing. And the United States had been slowly working itself out of a, a depression, the Panic of 1837, all through the 1840s. And even 12 years on, there's still a residual effects until the glut of California gold changes things. But the thing I want to also point out about maritime history is that in some ways, it's not unlike other aspects of history. And I want to go back to those, those ports, those doghole ports we were looking at up the North Coast outside the Golden Gate. What you see initially is a very common thing as an economy develops. You've got lots of startups, you've got ranches where you or I, 50 miles apart, have developed our ranch and we're running our sheep or our cows, we're making cheese and processing milk and butter. And we've got some of our folks cutting down trees and making shingles or taking tan bark or how, whatever we're doing to the sawmill that's milling the lumber. And we develop in the cove right below our ranch, a little dog hole, so-called because it's so tight that a dog would have to back in and out to get there. So you get these tiny little schooners that are coming and they're basically, they're flat panel trucks of, of the 19th century. Three, four guys running them. They work job to job. They're not belonging to any company. And so they'll come to your ranch and they'll load up 20 barrels of butter and couple barrels of preserved apples from your orchard and a bunch of lumber. Then they're going to sail to my ranch and do the same thing. When they're full, they go to San Francisco to market. That leads to dozens of these little dog hole ports up and down the coast. But then over time, some of them die off. Uh, 
some guys really develop the bigger. You know, I got three shoots to load at my ranch. Come to Black Point, which is today Sea Ranch, and and load up. And I'll get guys to bring their stuff. So then you have the entrepreneur who forms a consortium, and then consortiums ultimately get taken over by corporations. So in the end, the last of these dog hole ports that we looked at was at Russian Gulch, where it had become a big industrial activity run by a, by a corporation. The Tanya, the ranch, they were gone, abandoned, moved on, and everything had passed from everybody having a stake in the game to a bunch of investors paying for infrastructure and for people working as laborers, including the kids, some of these former dog hole port owners, now um, running this big port until ultimately trains and semi-trucks, you know, take over that, that aspect of the trade. And it's no different in a mining town. It's no different elsewhere. It's um, as we as Americans transitioned from a, a culture that was more rural and industry in the home with mom and the kids helping you make your candles or as the cobbler making those shoes to then going to factories and then ultimately individual and family owned factories to corporate structure. And in that, what we oftentimes see as archeologists is not just the physical manifestation of that change in terms of infrastructure. We see it in terms of what it means to people. Yeah. Uh, to close, uh, I've got two questions for you. The first is uh, for book recommendations. Um, beyond your work, which we'll talk about in a second, uh, what are some good book recommendations either about uh, uh, marine archaeology or um, about the history of California or shipwrecks uh, that you'd recommend? There's a big, vast library that's out there, um, the variety of books um, that speak to that experience. Um, shipwreck books are always fun, and there's a few that talk to about the West Coast experience. Um, I mean, and we I did one myself with the wrecks outside the Golden Gate, but it's not my favorite. I mean, I think sometimes what I, I do is I go back to some of the old, older books that were written that that integrated in in some way, shape, or form. Um, Probably, I mean, let's just go back to this one point of, shall we say, the gold rush. The book, par none, that I recommend people read, because I think nothing's come since that's really changed the power of that book, is, um, is Jim Holiday's The World Rushed In. Brilliant, magnificent book that speaks to the human experience. What I like about that is that as a historian initially, and as an archeologist, I, I focus on people and people's stories because I think that's where history really is. It's how we experience it as individuals interacting with others. And I think it's that those aspects where you see the common experience and oftentimes through their letters, their diaries. And that's where the world, where the world rushed in works so well. It's in that same vein, you can put yourself there. And so thanks to those types of experiences and then reading accounts I could, in my mind's eye, time travel in that way archaeologists sometimes do in their imaginations when standing in the hold of the Niantic or the General Harrison or on the deck of the William Gray. Um, the, there's no, there's maritime histories of California that are available and online. 
Um, and rather than you know go to a generic one, let me just say that some of my favorites, again, going back, John Haskell Kemble, who wrote the first major book on the Panama route during the bull rush, did an illustrated history of the Port of San Francisco. And it's a coffee table book, but it's one with a brain. Done in the 50s, still available, uh, not as a new book, but you know sometimes the best ones are the oldies and goodies, and they're the keepers. I mean, after all, we are now seeing people go back to vinyl LPs, aren't we? Right. So um, Kemble's Maritime History of San Francisco is just brilliant. Robert Schwendinger did a great book on the history of the port. Um, it's just, there's a range. There's a range of, of books. In terms of maritime archaeology, um, it depends on what flavor you like. I mean, there's general books that talk all about it. Um, one of my favorites comes back to, and it's just the basic practice of it. George Bass is one of the founding parents of underwater archaeology. Uh, he was once known as the founding father of underwater archaeology, but people forgot that there were women there that had predated him um, and, you know, did their own work and had worked with George, um, as well as other archaeologists. But George's books, Archaeology Under Water, um, his history of seafaring based on underwater archaeology, two volumes, one more global, the other based on North America. They're older now, but they still stand to me as classics. And in that, what I, I would say is that any book that, and I, I try to write my own this way, that is approachable, that is not so heavily laden with jargon or convoluted discussion, but plainly and simply lays it out, those are my favorites. And I read a lot of manuscripts. I see a lot of stuff that comes out. And I think people are increasingly looking at this, particularly as we write to adjust the inequalities and the outright omissions and suppression that came from earlier books. Yeah. Uh, the final question, um, I, I'm a teacher. I work with students all the time. Um, and so imagine that a, a, you know, a budding high school student with an interest in archaeology says, I want to be the next Jim Delgado. What should I do? Uh, what would you be your advice for them? Well, fortunately, I had teachers like you. <laughs> and this started in junior high school. I, am, I was encouraged to read, 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 coming back to your earlier question. I was also encouraged to see. And it, it starts in your own backyard. Growing up in San Jose with my initial interest in archaeology, my father first took me a few times and then he just dropped me off where I could spend the afternoon going through the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum or the San Jose Historical Museum. Um, I then in my high school years made a point not just to visiting the missions or other historic sites, but doing some research and then going up back in those days when you could, uh, driving up in the foothills outside of San Jose to a tumbled over ranch houses, adobes. But also in that, I would also go knock on doors and talk to old timers uh, whose families had been there since the 1870s and who had powerful stories to tell. And doing this in the early 70s, meeting guys that had been born before the century had changed and who had grown up and gone to war in World War I, um, as well as my own great-grandmother was born in the 1880s, uh, that asking questions, wanting to stop and listen, 
getting into it, engaged in it. I mean, that's, that was it for me. It was learning as much as I could, both from other people, from going to places, but also by reading. And then not being afraid to volunteer and work. I mean, I got my first real taste of all of that as a 14-year-old uh, working at the New Almaden Museum for Constance Para, sweeping the floors, washing the cases, um, and being bored as a 14-year-old reading every label until finally she revealed that was all part of her plan. She asked me to take her on a tour, and I did. And she said, you've been reading all the labels as you've been washing these windows. Oh, yes, ma'am, because they were huge plate glass covers of these cases that were like you know, the window of a, of a department store on the street. And she said, I thought so. She said, now do you want to learn more? Yes. So she said, okay, read this. And I started, I started giving tours for 50 cents an hour. Yeah, I think um, us as uh, mentors, we can see in students when there's a genuine curiosity, a wantingness to learn. And it's not just, you know, uh, what a lot of people are writing about today where college students are kind of, uh, you know, instrumentalizing their professors and they're just there to get a grade or get something. Uh, but when you meet a student with that genuine curiosity and wanting to learn, um, I think mentors uh, will be more than uh, generous with their time, their resources, their connections, and will put you on the right path. And that's why I continue to do that. I will say this, though, you reach a stage, even as I have now in my early 60s, where you begin to understand that mentoring is not just an age-based thing, that you can learn, you continue to learn from others. And I, I'm married to a librarian, and Anne has always been an advocate of libraries as centers for lifelong learning. I believe in that concept very much, and I also believe that even now at 63, I remain open to learning. I'm working on a project now, writing up something and I'm excited because I'm learning something I didn't know before. And shoes are dropping in terms of things I'd heard about or something, some aspect of history that I really didn't quite fully get. And with another project where we're currently, you know, working on the legacy of the last ship known to have brought captive Africans to America to, to enslave them in 1860 meeting with that descendant community and being reminded of the power of this as family history, but also family history that belongs to many American families, many, many American families, and understanding why we need to be talking about it and addressing it um, is key, particularly as in the process of that work with the Clotilde. Uh, I had to come face to face with my own realization that as a child growing up in a family that had sundered by divorce, not realizing that the family that I was born into had been active, complicit um, partners in slavery. My great-great-grandfather had um, enslaved 25 people in Mississippi and fought as a Confederate. And before my mother and father divorced, the little old lady that watched me was his youngest daughter. And for me then to come from that to be working as the lead archaeologist on a quest to identify the last ship known to have brought people to America to be, to make them slaves, which they never agreed to. They fought and resisted all the way through their five years before the, you know, the end of the war and, and emancipation came. Uh, again, the power of archaeology, but as well, for me, the importance of keeping an open mind and always being somebody who wants to learn.
So I, I, I get mentored by younger colleagues and experience just as much as I offer mentoring opportunities. This has been a real pleasure, Jim. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you very much for asking. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Jim Delgado. As always, you can support this podcast by either leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash historyofcalifornia. We'll see you next time.